I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 138, passage I'll be preaching from this morning. It's a psalm of King David as he uh, finds his strength comes from the Lord and no one else. Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. All men are like grass, their glory like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Amen. Let's pray and ask that the Lord will be our teacher this morning, that he will guide us to his truth. Lord, I do thank you again for this morning. Thank you for this past week and how your grace has been with us. And Lord, as we uh, enter into a new week today and and coming together in your house with your people, uh, Father, I pray that your spirit would, would teach us more of Jesus Christ. Teach us more of what it means to be called your children, to be adopted into your family. And Father, I pray that these words that you inspired, this uh, song of praise, Father, would it affect our hearts as we see reality of your word that you have for us. Draw us near to you, I pray again in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but the past couple of weeks, I've really been fascinated with this soccer team in Thailand. If you've been keeping up with this on the news, you know that there was a group of uh, 12, 13-year-olds that were a soccer team and their coach, and they were, they were exploring a cave, and I don't know exactly what happened, but they found themselves trapped there for a long period of time. Uh, I've never been trapped in a cave, but I assume that's one of the worst things you could ever imagine. Uh, I'm sure, again, you kept up with this on the news. I first saw this actually on ESPN because it was a sports story because they were soccer players. But after about a week, the team was found. They were discovered. And uh, they could hear their voices and everyone celebrated and it was great. They had been surviving on the fresh water that was there in the cave. And then over another week before they were actually rescued. But when I first heard that they had been found... I have to admit, I kind of quit paying attention to the story. I just assumed, I assumed wrongly, but I just assumed that once they found them, all you had to do was drill a hole down there and get them out. 
it seemed like a pretty easy deal once they were found. But again, if you've been keeping up with the news at all, you understand that that's not what happened at all. So you get these, these kids, 12 and 13-year-olds in their coach, in darkness. They were communicated with. They received some nourishment. I'm sure their hope was renewed. But they eventually had to go through some dark, dark, dark places and dark times in their lives, swimming three miles in total darkness, holding on to a rope, trusting the person beside them, these professional divers, danger surrounding them. And not only that, once they finally got out of the cave, they still couldn't see their parents. They were held in the hospital somewhat in a solitary place just so that their health could be uh, bettered. Their journey is still continuing even now, long after being found. Again, I don't know what it's like to be in a dark cave. Uh, I went on the seventh grade field trip to Mammoth Cave once, and after about an hour, I was more than happy to leave. And that was with a tour and where you could turn the lights on. But I had to imagine, for these kids, when they first heard the words of their rescuers after that first week, it had to be the sweetest words they had ever heard in their life. The greatest sound ever. Hallelujah, they found us and we're going home. Again, I'm assuming I might be wrong, but I bet in their heart they had to think, we're going home today. This nightmare is over. We're getting out of this cave right now. That's what I would have thought. But yet, their deliverance just started. It didn't end. It just began. All they had was the promise from a very reliable source that we're coming to get you. And that's what they held on to. You know, you think about that story, you compare that to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't take much of a preacher to connect the dots. That in so many ways, that's our story. You know, who we are this morning as followers of Jesus Christ, we are people who hold on to the promise from a very reliable source that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he's never forgotten us, and that he is coming for us. That's who we are. We've heard the words of our resurrected Savior to come and to follow him, to trust him with our whole lives, that he will be our God and we will be his people. And those words were sweet when we first heard them. And they did not end our journey. Rather, they began our walk with Christ. And we hold on to him all the way. You know, for those boys, I hope that they were strong as they waited. As they went to sleep night after night after night, knowing that someone knew who they were, but they were still there. I hope in their heart, in their soul, they became strong. But my prayer for us this morning and my proposition for this sermon is, because it's God's voice speaking to us. And all that he has done in our past, as we consider our futures... And whatever it is that God has for us, we actually could be people of strength. Not in who we are, not of what we have done, but in who he is and what he has said is true of us. So in that spirit, let's turn our attention again to Psalm 138. And consider these words from a man who is strong in his heart, though weak in his flesh. This is King David. If you were here last week, we read from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I preached about David as the king of Israel with whom God made a covenant. And he told David, even though David wanted to build the Ark of the Covenant, God said no to that. But he said, instead of that, I'm going to build a dynasty through you. 
And out of you will come the ultimate king, and that will be Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. David was overwhelmed and he was overjoyed with the promises of God. So when you think about Psalm 138, what I want you to see this morning is in the context of this song, David knows this future. He knows that there is a promise. These words were written after he had been given the promise that his kingdom would never end. And yet see, here in this psalm, verse 3, David is a man who has to live by faith, who gets to live by faith. He's a man who is trusting the Lord. Even though he knows this incredible promise in the future, he's a man of prayer. He's a man who asks God and depends upon God. Also, we see in verse 7, we'll talk more about this in a moment. He's a man walking in the midst of trouble. Here he is, a royal king, someone with whom he speaks with God, and yet... He's in trouble. So even though God has declared your future is secure, he also declares my work in you is not finished. So for us as members of this covenant community, of these promises of God, God's work in us is not finished. It does beg the question. When you gave your life to Christ, what did you really think your life would be about? I hope we'll see this morning that our life is about Jesus is still doing many, many things in our life. I want us to see and focus just at the end of the song. From verses 6, verse 7, and verse 8, three points. From verse 6, I want us to see that our faith is made strong by first embracing our dependence. Verse 7, our faith is made strong by embracing his skill, his skill in our life. And then lastly, verse 8, our faith is made strong by embracing his truth, his truth in our hearts and our lives. So first, look back at verse 6 with me as we see King David embracing his dependence upon the Lord. So what we see here is that, that David makes it very, very clear that his strength throughout his life as he considers his future is 1,000% derived from the power of God who has been gracious to him in the past. This song is really a song of praise. As he thinks about the past, he praises God in the present, even as he thinks about an unknown future. And he considers all that his life will be about in his future. He recognizes that there is a path of perseverance for him today. And David's desire is to remain connected to the God who had delivered him all of his days in the past. So as he thinks going forward, I want to be connected to the same God, the one who loves me. He wants to continue to remain in the grip of the grace of his loving, faithful father, the one who had been passionate for his people for all time. And David realizes that for his soul to be strengthened, and the NIV says in this passage that his soul is stout-hearted, that he is to be a person who recognizes that he is one who receives strength. He does not own it in his own strength, but rather it is given to him. Notice the attribute, the word here. Verse 6 is that God is near the one who is lowly. Lowly. Not, not a word that we typically want to embrace. In our world, we typically are trained to think of the complete opposite. Lowly is a status we want to avoid. But not inside of God's kingdom, which always works differently than this world. You know what's true of somebody who's low, a lowly person, a humble person? 
I think what's true of that person is that deep in their heart, in their inner man, in their soul, they fully embrace that they are dependent upon somebody else. A lowly person sees his or her need for another. They know they're limited. They know they're weak. They know that they're not the masters of the universe. They know they need help. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what this world is about is God's kingdom of heaven coming to earth. Being poor in spirit means that we embrace our spiritual poverty, that we cannot make it on our own unless someone helps us. The opposite of the lowly person here we see in verse 6 is the haughty or the proud person. Proud people are those who do not see their need for help. They don't see their need for God. Or at least they want a God whom they can control. And they find their strength for their future totally upon their own gifts, their own skill, their own imagination. And God's promise to them is simply that he will be far from them. So you have one that the Lord is near, one who the Lord is far. And then over time you see the results in our lives of both of those things. David's preaching to himself as he contemplates his future. God has delivered me in the past. How dare I think I can handle it from here on out? No way. No way. One of the most influential teacher, speaker, writers in my life over the last 25 years is a lady named Nancy Lee DeMoss. Maybe you've heard of Nancy Lee or read some of her stuff. Uh, She recently was married and now it's Nancy Wogglemuth. Many years ago, she spoke at a conference with Campus Crusade, and Lisa and I were in attendance uh, while she was there speaking. And she did a series on Luke chapter 15, where she contrasted the lives of the older brother and the younger brother. If you remember the story from Luke chapter 15, the older brother represented the Pharisees, a religiously prideful person who didn't like not being recognized by his father, even though he had done a lot of good stuff. Where the younger brother, he recognized what a mess he had made of his own life, and he simply hung to the grace of God, and that was it. And Nancy DeMoss gave this outline on the attributes as she had prayed and meditated on the differences between proud people and broken people. If you want a great study, you can Google that and read through those attributes, and it it will affect your life. I reread through this this past week, thinking about who is a lowly person and who is a proud person. Some of the things that, that Nancy taught stood out to me this week, I'll share with you now. First, she said that proud people are people who focus on the failures of others, while lowly people, broken people, are overwhelmed with their own spiritual need. You see the difference? Proud people are those who are defensive when they're criticized. Lowly people, broken people, receive criticism with a humble, open spirit because they understand the reality of their brokenness. She said, proud people don't think that they have anything of which to repent. But broken people, lowly people, realize that they have a continual need to confess and to repent of their sin. You see the difference? The person whom God is near is the one who freely admits sin, 
who does not try to deceive other people about his or her weaknesses, who doesn't hide from the fears of this life, the brokenness, the concerns of this life. Lowly people understand they're dependent and they embrace it. They don't look down on other people. They don't compare themselves to others. They're people who can be in a small group and be transparent about what's really going on in their heart and their life because they know they need other people. Lowly people are those who have the spiritual maturity to admit their own personal faults. And all the while they run to Jesus continuously and he meets with them. John Piper, famous writer, author, preacher, once famously said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That is, in every area of my life, that I am satisfied in him. I go to him. I see him. And when that happens, God is glorified. The result being we are near to God when we see our need for him. John Calvin said about verse 6, I love this because it, it brings out even our own pride. He says that we can gladly embrace the lofty status of God on high. Where we struggle is we have a hard time believing that God will actually draw near to us. And friends, that's the good news this morning. When we see and embrace our dependence upon him, God's promise to you, he draws near to you. He will be with you. He will be near you. Friends, every single detail of your life this morning, God cares about. How are we made strong in our faith? First, we, we depend upon him. Secondly, look at verse 7. We see that we have confidence about our future, we have maturity, we have, we have uh, hope because of what he's doing in our life, his skill in our life. I love this verse, let me read it again. David says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life, fact. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. You know, make no mistake about it here, make sure we're all on the same page. David is the king, and you know what else David has? David's got problems. He doesn't tell us what they are. And for our point this morning, we really don't need to know what they are. We simply need to know that as God's child, as God's royal servant, he's got issues. He's got problems. There are things going on. Just because he belongs to God does not mean that God keeps all problems away from him. No, what we see here is that God, the sovereign one, allow David to go through something, either hurt or disappointment or problems or pain or whatever the case may be, he's going through the midst of trouble. You see, being saved, hearing God's word, hearing God's voice does not mean that we now have this easy life. No, rather it means that God is at work doing something inside of us. There will come a day when our salvation is complete, but that day is not today. We're still in the middle of what he's doing. We're just like those kids. We're on a journey. We've heard his voice. We believe. We respond. But now we are following him. The second half of verse 7 gives us a great clue into the greater work of Jesus Christ and his heart for us. So we have David. He's in tune with all of, all of these issues. God's forming him. He's molding him. He's doing something. He's shaping his character. He'll use all kind of means to affect us. But then notice... Notice the work of God's hand and catch the difference here. 
He says that God's hand, that is his invisible works of providence, how he works things out, his hand is always active. Against our enemies, God stretches out his hand and he defeats them. He conquers them, his work in a general sense. But then notice the work with his servants, with us. David says, with your right hand, you deliver us. You see, there's a general sense against our enemies, but then in a very particular way, his right hand is for us. This is what's important here. The right hand of God in Scripture is to be understood as God's powerful, skillful, loving work. Do you catch what Jesus Christ is doing? Jesus Christ knows exactly what he's doing in your life today. He has skill that we don't have. As the author of our faith, as the perfecter of our faith, he is at work. I want you to see the gospel in this this morning. Jesus Christ is a master craftsman molding a work of art. And we, as his adopted brothers and sisters, are that work of art. And he is masterfully at work in your heart and in your lives this morning. Be encouraged. I don't know what troubles you face. But just as David faced troubles, we do as well. They are various and they are many. But understand, they are not outside of Jesus Christ's rule and reign in your life. The maker of the universe possesses perfect skill in his craft. He knows what he's doing. And as I thought about this, and I just thought of things around my house yesterday that I've made an attempt to fix. You know, the reality is I don't know how to fix anything in my house. Not really. I can mow, I can weed eat, I can paint a little bit, I can do a few things like that. That's about as far as it goes. Because I just don't have those skills. I, I, I wasn't born with them and I haven't really learned them. When I have real issues, plumbing, electricity, that sort of thing going on, what do I do? I call people with skill. I call people with the right hand who understand what they're doing. In the Lord's kindness, he's given me buddies who know what they're doing. Greg Carr, Jeremy Kelly, Harry Staniger, Roger Cannon, they all regret the day that they became my buddies. But what is it that they possess? They have skill. They know what they're doing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question number 26 asks this question. He says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is in the catechism, it says, in subduing us to himself, in ruling us, in defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and all of our enemies. You see what he's doing? What Jesus is doing even today. He's ruling us. And he knows what he's doing. So whatever you're going through in your life this morning, know that your loving father has you in his right hand. And he knows his craft well. And his craft is laced in his love for you. Your king, Jesus Christ, the one who has taken our sin, is ruling you today, and he knows his craft. So how are you strong? You embrace your dependence upon him. 
But secondly, you trust in his skill and his, your life. And then lastly, quickly, we simply again embrace the truth. Look back at verse 8 and let this be the theme of your life. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This is the words of David as he's hanging on to the Lord in the midst of trouble. And he's saying, my confidence is, God, do not forget the work of your hands. And I know that you won't because you will fulfill your purpose for me. The truth that God is going to do something. Again, I sense here David preaching to his own heart where he is saying to himself again and again and again, God will not let me down. God will finish what he started. This is the Old Testament equivalent of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll complete it. He'll do it. He'll finish it. David's saying, I don't know the future specifically, but I know the one of whom I trust, and I know this. That God will fulfill what he said he's going to do because he loves us. In his ways, in his timing, all motivated by his grace, it will be fulfilled. And David, as a result, is now strong. There is no hint of arrogance about this strength. Not at all. There's no self-promotion. There's no come look at me and how good I am. No, this is a man who trusts the promises of God in the future because he has seen what he has done in the past. What's God doing in your life today? If you've been around this church long enough, you know. What God is doing is that he is shaping you and your character and your heart and your life to be like the man, Jesus Christ. He's making our lives like him. He's changing us. He's conforming us. He'll allow us to go through hard times. This is our destiny. We inherit these promises and he will complete them. Now this morning, if you're here and you don't believe that this is motivated by his love, you will either become religiously prideful in what you do or I suspect you will drop out of the faith altogether. See, all of David's confidence here is based on the fact God loves him. That's his confidence. My prayer for us this morning, as we consider our futures and all that we don't know, that we will be people whose faith is strong because of the one who knows us. You know, I'm not entirely sure what the, the latest status of this soccer team in Thailand is. I know they're in a hospital the last I checked the news and, and they were making progress. I hope they're getting better every day. But the last time I saw the news about them, they were still in their isolation room at the hospital, but they were beginning to eat and take on more nourishment. And what I heard on the news is that they asked, can we please have some bread and can we have some chocolate? And I don't know about you, but bread and chocolate sounds like a healthy person to me. You know what this means going on in their heart? Is that there's a spirit of hopefulness. There's a capacity for I think we're going to be okay. There's an element of optimism because of the future. And that's exactly what this table declares to our hearts this morning. There's a lot I don't know about our future, but I'm going with Jesus. And I know what he says is true. He has taken my sin upon himself. 
He has canceled my debt and I belong to him. So as we come to the table this morning, may we consider our futures with confidence because of the promises of God. Let me pray and ask that the Lord will prepare us to come around the communion table this morning. Oh, Father, you are indeed good to us. Lord, our sin is great. We don't deserve your kindness. We know that. We don't deserve your goodness to us. But you have chosen in your grace and in your kindness to love us, to pour out your mercy upon us, to be good to us, to care for us. And Lord, as we come now to this table, I ask that you would again nourish us through the power of your spirit. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.